since we put the cattle back on and we re-implement our fertilizer from the feedlot, we've taken our organic matter in the soil from two and 3% on some of our poor, poor fields and got it up to five and a half, six percent 6% organic matter. And for us being a dry land farm, each percent of organic matter allows us to hold an extra inch of rainwater. So that way we're capturing our rainwater when it falls, it's saturating into our ground, into our soil and allowing us to grow a better crop. And like you said, just that microbiome of the soil, when you can take a spade shovel and dig a spade shovel up and have a handful of earthworms, having those worms in the soil, a healthy soil is what makes all the difference. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. We talk about what's happening in farm country a lot, and some of the people that talk about what's happening in farm country are people that just fly over it. In fact, they refer to that whole part of the country as flyover country. And well, I've got a couple people today that are right on their farms and they're in what some people refer to as flyover country. Uh, Brian Mose and Paige Delaney. Um, welcome. I'm glad to have you both here. And I'm going to have you introduce yourselves a little bit too, because when I mentioned, you know, flyover country, I, I did that on purpose because so many people you know, seem to have a lot of ideas about what's going on in agriculture, but so many of them have never been on a farm and they're getting all their information secondhand, uh, let alone out on your farms. And your farms are in South Dakota and Colorado. And we've had a chance to get acquainted on Clubhouse where we've had conversations. We're going to talk about those because sometimes they've joined in the Clubhouse rooms with people that suspect that there's many reasons for them to be concerned about agriculture today. And I've heard both of you kind of articulate your view from the farm. And so I'm just happy to have you both here on Farm to Table Talk this morning. And uh, and so, Paige, I'm tempted to have you introduce Brian because you've heard him talk so much. And Brian, I'm tempted to have you introduce Paige because you've heard her talk quite a bit. And, and both of you talking about your operations, but maybe I'll go the more conventional way and I'll let Paige get started. And first, Paige, why don't you tell people where you live and what your, what your situation is and your, your farming operation in Northeastern Colorado? Yeah, so thanks for having me, Roger. Um, I live in Northeastern Colorado and my husband and I farm and ranch with my father-in-law as well. Um, we, uh, have, let's see, almost a thousand acres of farm ground that we are either farming ourselves or custom farming for somebody as well. Um, we have a cow calf operation with about 280 mama cows. And we also have, um, yearlings this year as well, about 250 yearlings that we're taking the grass. Um, so we're kind of diverse in that, um, area. We also do some like trucking for silage season and beet haul and, and stuff like that for people around here. But we're, we are out here just, um, making a living. We, I mean, I know you said we are from the flyover States. We're really about, 
about half an hour from any sort of town. Um, so that makes it kind of interesting, but that's a little about me. Yeah, well, good. Well, we're going to come back to you, Paige. And now, now, now to you, Brian, where are you in South Dakota? Yeah, I'm Brian Mose, located up in northeastern South Dakota. I am here on the family farm where I was born and raised. I was able to marry my high school sweetheart, and we've had five boys from the year 10 years on down to 10 months. So we got quite the range of boys, and it's really been a passion to be able to have them out here in the in the farm and part of it to build the community here locally. And our operation is a 2000 head feedlot. We're a, a CAFO, a concentrated animal feeding operation, which means that we have our cattle penned up, but we have to follow strict regulations to make sure we're keeping any rain runoff or water from entering any of our prairie potholes or sloughs. So we keep clean, fresh water there. And when we haul manure, we have to haul it and, and get it incorporated into the soil a certain way. So we follow all those rules, regulations, and follow beef quality assurance as well for best practices for handling cattle. With that, I'm happy to say we have 350 cows we calve out each year. We have a big commercial Black Angus herd, and we are just in the middle of breeding season now. So we're bringing them in and out, and we work with our local university and do some research on different breeding techniques to get the best conception rates to be as effective as possible. So we're involved in building the community, building the knowledge around agriculture and trying to help people get out and see the farm. And we have tours of the local university and grade schools, which COVID shut down for us. So we were really disappointed because we really love having the first graders, the third graders out here, as well as the college students. So we're hoping to resume that here in a post-COVID world because that's the only way we're going to get our message out is get the people there to see what our operations are. So a lot like Paige, we're both out here advocating for agriculture, beef, how we're using ingredients and upcycling marginal lands and a bunch of different feed ingredients. Boy, we got to go back. Hey, Paige, you got ahead of you there. Uh, you didn't mention your kids. Um, and, and since he gets to mention five boys, uh, how are you in the kid category? Well, I don't have five boys, but I do have two. Um, I have a four-year-old and a nine-month-old and my husband. So I don't know if you want to count him in the kid category or the adult category, <laughs> but <laughs> but I am the lone ranger woman here. Oh, well, um, this is an unfair question for both of you, but what do you think the chances are that any of those boys are going to end up being farmers or ranchers someday? I, my goal is always to show them what what's available and try and be sustainable and increase what we have here on the operation. So I'm hoping half of them come back, but if one of my five boys come back, I would be overjoyed. So that's really what I'm looking for. I, I want them to leave the farm, get an experience somewhere else as I did with my engineering degree. And I learned a lot of great things I could bring back because I want them to break that tie, even if it's going to another farm or something for a couple of years. So they can see what other people do and bring something back to the operation. How about you, Paige? Yeah, Brian, I think that's a really good point of um, wanting your kiddos to kind of spread their wings and, and try out something else first. Um, my oldest is a rancher 
through and through. I, I frequently have to tell him that I have been doing this for a lot longer than he has and that, and that he doesn't need to tell me how to sort the cows that I already got that covered. Um, but I don't think I could take that out of him, even if I tried. Um, my youngest, I think I, it, it's too early to tell, but he does seem very, very um, thrilled with the tractor rides. So maybe my youngest will be more interested in farming and the oldest will be more interested in ranching, but who knows? Yeah. Well, hey, Paige, how about in your case, um, did you grow up on a farmer ranch? I did. Yeah. So I didn't grow up with the farming. Um, I grew up on a ranch. My dad actually had two different ranches um, and he ran between a thousand and fifteen hundred head of yearlings. Um, and so I grew up with ranching and um, riding horses to check pastures and all of that business. And we just had a little like 80 acre hay field. Um, and now we're doing the cow calf business mostly and we're farming a whole bunch of acres. So it's been a little bit of a mind shift for me, but I've definitely had this in my blood my whole life. And Brian, you said you're on uh, you're back on the ranch that you grew up in. Yeah, I was fortunate enough. I went to college, got an education there, so I could go spread my wings. And I moved back home seven years ago and kind of kicked my parents out of the home place. They bought a place away from the home farm, which is good because then dad isn't here when it's calving time and all the time. I'm I'm here on site, so if something happens, I can get up and go take care of it. He's earned his break to to be away and not have to worry about someone calls cows are out in the middle of the night. I'm right here. I can go out and take care of it. So, yep. I grew up here on this farm. We started with 30 cow calf pairs when I was three years old and we've grown to 300 and 2000 head feedlots. So, you know, one thing that strikes me is that you both having grown up on uh, farms and ranches that um, you decided to go to college. And at that point you didn't go off a major in agriculture. I mean, you were engineering and Paige, you've been a teacher. So was it education that was your degree then? Yeah, my um, actual bachelor's is in early childhood education. But um, it's funny because even though I'm a teacher through and through, I'm now pivoting and using my education background um, for agriculture advocacy. So, I mean. Say that again. Oh, you say you're using it for agriculture advocacy. I I, I get it. Agriculture advocacy. And um, so I'm just using my teacher skills and how to talk to people, how to um, spread awareness, how to help people grow and learn things and kind of taking that background and just using it in a different way now. Hey, Brian, doesn't this make sense now? You and I have both heard Paige uh, sometimes cross-examined about agriculture practices and how well she explains it. Little did we know she had been practicing on seven-year-olds. Yeah, that's it's the best way to learn. That's how, I, how I've learned to tell people is telling the kids and, and training my kids now. Yeah. And uh, it's um, it, the, we're going to get into that. We're going to talk a little bit about that about that whole job. But I'm still kind of intrigued. I mean, you both went off to college, and then you're back on a ranch and a farm. And and I think, did you see that coming? I mean, did this something that we're just, you know, you got you both were on a course that you were studying other things, and somewhere along the line, was that coming to you while you were in college? You said, you know what, 
I'm going to be back on the ranch or I'm going to be back on the farm someday. For me, yes. And I might be odd. I'm left-handed too. So maybe that explains a little bit of it. But I went to college. I loved my math and science. So I wanted to get my engineering so I could design and make stuff for the farm because I always liked tinkering, welding, making wood projects, building stuff for the farm to make stuff easier. So I didn't have to do stuff by hand with the five gallon pail. And when I went off to college, it was discussed with my dad, you know, can you make it if I go to college? Cause I'm going to need to get a job in engineering to be able to go back into engineering and learn and utilize it. And can the farm make it without me here other than weekends? And he said, yep, we'll make it work. And I'm so glad he did and was able to build the operation when I was gone to have something for me to come back and step into and hopefully pass it on to the future generation. How about you, Paige? Did, did you see it coming? Did, there's a point to you said, I'm, I'll be back on the, back on the ranch someday. Yeah, I definitely saw it coming. <laughs> I um, needed to leave for a while. So after high school, I was like, the second I could move out, I moved out. I went to CSU for a year. Um, and funny enough, when I graduated high school, I had already completed my first year of college just with mm-hmm. dual credits. And so then when I was at CSU, um, looking to get into their education program, I was too far ahead for what they were looking for um, at that time. And I was like, I am not sitting around here for another year paying you money for me to have this college experience um, when I could do something different. So, and, and I also knew that I didn't want to live in the city. I wanted to come back to um, the rural area. I wanted to still be on the farm, on the ranch with my dad. Um, so at the same time I had met my husband and, you know, moved back home again for that too. Um, but yeah, once I, once I got here, it just, then I was able to, um, go through a alternative life or an alternative program for college where you are going to school at night and turning in assignments online. So I was able to work full time and um, finish my bachelor's and actually came out of college debt free, um, which was really awesome. And then went into teaching, which helped subsidize the getting into farming and ranching um, with my husband. And now I'm able to um, be at home this year because the pandemic kind of helped us just be in that situation. But you know, it's probably not politically correct for me to ask what your ages are, but are you are you both either millennial or close to it? Yeah, I guess I'm not afraid. I'm 35, just turned here in January, and I'm of the age where I'm aging out of some uh, state leadership for young farmers and ranchers type deals, and now I'm getting to the fact where I got to go to the big boy table for boards to to sit. So it's kind of been a transition and. I'm younger than the average age of the farmer and grew up in a different age, but where I grew up rural in the rural region, I feel that I grew up in an older time frame. possibly wouldn't maybe be the way to put it because it was still real community focused and not quite as metropolitan. Yeah. Now, how about Paige? Are you, would you, are you a millennial? Um, so I am 31 and I don't, know if I consider myself a millennial, if I have the same like ideals as a millennial or I, I don't know. I, I, similar to Brian, um, I think I'm an old soul and 
I think growing up in like a rural area just gives you a different perspective on things. And I also grew up with older parents. So my parents are baby boomers um, and they were 40, 42 when I was born. And I have siblings that are like 20 years older than me. So I grew up in, in with parents that were a lot older and a generation um, with a lot different ideals than some of the millennials as well. So I think that I just have different, a different mindset, but yeah, I don't know when I even asked you that question, it's just that we talk about millennials so much and what do millennials think and what are millennials doing? And most people don't think about millennial farmers and millennial ranchers and either the two of you and the people that you know are uh, out on the farm and on the ranch and, and have perspectives, been to college, had other things that you've had on your mind, find yourself back at the ranch. Now, I think it's fair to say, though, in each of your cases, getting back, you had a family connection, which anymore, it's pretty hard to get back even with a family connection. And like you're pointing out, Paige, you need to teach for a while or you do some other things because it just isn't easy getting into farming. And and when you do have that chance that you can come in with an uncle or, you know, grandparents or parents or somebody, that's great. And I know we've talked before about there's other ways that people are finding how they can get into agriculture. But um, but you are in. And I want to go back now. Let's just um, take a couple of the things you talked about. Now, Paige, you were talking about the, the cow herd that you've got. Um, describe to me where you would... Where do those cattle spend all their time? How do, what do they eat and where do they live? Yeah, so we have them during the summer. Like right now, we are about to go out to grass. We've waited a little, a little long to take them out to grass because we were in a drought last year and the grass got grazed a little bit hard. So we've been um, waiting an extra couple of weeks to take them out. But during the summer, they're out on pasture. Um, and then during the winter months, I guess you'd say we rent corn stalks or we turn them out on our own corn stalks for after feed. Um, then when they start calving, we bring them to the corn stalks closer to home, um, to calve. And once they have calved out or they're close to finishing, whatever the feed is kind of, kind of gone in the field, um, we actually, bring them into our, um, corrals to finish calving until we can turn out to grass again. So we do have, have them in the corrals for a little bit of time there. Um, but that's, that's what we do with our cow herd. Um, this is the first year that I've convinced my husband to get into the yearling business with my family. Um, so this year we had our yearlings in the corrals, um, we bought them this winter and then we just turned out in Wyoming, um, last week. So they're out on grass there and, and healthy and happy and running around. So they find grass in Wyoming. I, you have to, you have to, I just drove through Wyoming. I didn't see a lot of grass. So I'm, I'm sure there's pastures that are irrigated or somewhere, but that's to, the pastures your cows are on normally. What is is that land that's been rotated and planted into into pastures sometimes, or is it is, is it kind of rougher land that's really not fit for crop cropping otherwise? Yeah, um, where we run most of our cows at, um, it is in pasture and always has been pasture, but there are like, we rent those acres. There are some CRP acres that are around there as well. 
It's really, really hilly. Um, there's not a lot of rain out there. And then when they do get rain because of the hills, um, it just runs and runs and runs. So we've actually um, have helped the landowner there that we rent from plant some of his old dry land back into CRP. And we're trying to let it grow enough that we can graze that. But we planted that like, I want to say four or five years ago now, and it's still not even ready to graze just because, I mean, it is that rough of country even to try and um, to put back into rangeland. So yeah, that stuff is just not, the, the pasture that we're running on is just not really suitable um, for crops. So when you say CRP, conservation, what CRP? Conservation Reserve Program, I think is what that um, stands for. Um, And and Brian, um, how about your cows? Uh, Where do they live? What do they Yeah, Yeah, here in South Dakota, we end up getting uh, about three nice cold and snowy months. Usually we're blessed enough where the snow will come and melt a little bit in my area. This last year, we were able to put all 300 cows out on about 200 acres of corn stalks. The same thing like Paige was doing. And the great thing about putting the cows on the corn stalks is that helps with the soil health to incorporate the manure, the urea from the cows right there where we don't have to haul it out and have them corralled. We're fortunate to have some trees and a water source where water freezes. We fill the tank in the middle of winter and let the cows drink it down and we'll fill it up again so that it, we don't have to chop ice because that gets to be a chore in the middle of winter in South Dakota in the cold climate. So that's one of the struggles we have. But otherwise, right now in the summer and late fall, we're able to graze cover crops on some of our dry land farm acres. And we've seen improvements to our soil health and our organic matter by both doing that and grazing the cows. We're able to not have to feed them with a mixer wagon or hay bales. We're allowing them to go out there and do what they naturally do on pasture. And then all summer for three months, they'll go to pasture with their calves. And once they come off pasture, we'll come home, wean the calves. The calves will go into the feedlot and they'll stay there for about 120 days. And we, we pamper them, I call it. We clean their water tank for them twice a week and clean them bed the pens. And we deliver them a good balanced meal from our nutritionist, just like a dietitian would make a balanced meal for you. Yeah, well, it's it's really really interesting because when, as you both talk about putting the cows and and the cattle out on the on corn stalks, I mean, when I grew up, everybody did that. I mean, because we all got loads of western cattle in the winter time back in Illinois, and you feed them all winter. Uh, but but uh, you'd start them out, and you get your cows, you'd start them out running in in corn stalks. And you again, you remind me because so much of the Midwest now doesn't have any livestock at all. I mean, they're doing um, no-till or at least minimum minimum till, and uh, there's there's some cover crops and so forth. But but the livestock are gone now. I suspect that in both of your operations, that the soil I would just guess is a, a lot healthier, and you probably got much more uh, of the the kind of microbiome that really uh, is great for the plants. Because you do put cattle out on those on those fields. Yeah, one thing on our operation, we've seen, we worked with a local guy here that really got us going in conservation. And 
since we put the cattle back on and we re-implement our fertilizer from the feedlot, we've taken our organic matter in the soil from two and 3% on some of our poorer poor fields and got it up to five and a half, six percent 6% organic matter. And for us being a dry land farm, each percent of organic matter allows us to hold an extra inch of rainwater. So that way we're capturing our rainwater when it falls, it's saturating into our ground, into our soil and allowing us to grow a better crop. And like you said, just that microbiome of the soil, when you can take a spade shovel and dig a spade shovel up and have a handful of earthworms, having those worms in the soil, a healthy soil is what makes all the difference. I wish people would think about that a little bit, because I remember too, when you could go stick a spade in the ground and see uh, see earthworms. And that uh, when you were talking about getting that um, that the organic matter up, those those percentages, nobody talks about that. Uh, and it has a direct impact on the health of the soil. Paige, are, uh, I don't think of your part of the world of, of um, I don't know, having much rain, but um, are you able to see the impact of the livestock on the, on water retention and the moisture in the soils and so forth? Well, um, we do put them on some of our own corn stalks. Um, and I can't speak to exact percentages as well as Brian can with his operation. Um, I do know that it has been beneficial, um, for us just in the crop yields that we've had. Um, I will say that we, you know, we're putting them on other people's corn stalks as well. We kind of rotate through some different corn stalks in the area. Um, and in general, it's just a good practice. You're, you're recycling, um, those cattle nutrients that go through that, you know, you're recycling all of that waste and you're putting it back into the earth. You're getting those micronutrients back in there. You're increasing your crop yields. You're increasing your soil health. In general, it's a great practice. Um, I was joking about Wyoming because you said that you can kind of go pasture in Wyoming and there's an awful lot of Wyoming. It just looks like, in fact, when you graze a cattle up there, sometimes they need like 45 acres or something like that for a cow uh, by herself to just travel to get yeah. enough to eat in some areas. But I talked to somebody that was uh, growing produce up in the middle of, of um, Wyoming and they sent me a picture and they have been loading up that land, which looks like desert to most of us, but loading up the area where they were planting their produce with manure. And you could see it flying over. It was dark compared to light gray all around it. Have you seen that, Brian? That, that sort of thing that you can, you can actually see it with your eyes uh, when you start building it up. And it really was all about getting manure into, into the ground, really. Yeah, we live in kind of a unique region. We call it the prairie pothole, glacial lakes region. So we had glaciers come in. So we have sand and gravel deposits. So we have anywhere from clay loam soil to sandy loam soil. And we have some hilltops that it's almost like gravel and dark clay or, you know, the light clay in spots. And since we've been reincorporating this manure, since pretty much I've been a kid, we've been able to develop that topsoil profile of that black dirt from that light tan color to that darker black almost color. And that now we're working on getting that topsoil layer deeper into the soil to that six inches of good black topsoil on some of those hills and some of those, you know, more lighter soil areas. So they hold water and grow a crop as well. Wow. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, and, you know, Paige, 
Uh, I wanted to go back to something you were talking about. You decided to get into yearlings. That needs a little explanation, I think, for people, uh, because even talking pears is something that people kind of wonder what we're talking about. It's not really the fruit. I mean, we're talking about a cow and its calf, and you refer to them because they are a pear, obviously. But then when you get into yearlings, uh, those are cattle that have been weaned, right? And then you're going to grow them out on whatever forage that you've got available? Correct. So um, cows and calves are obviously a pair. Um, when that calf is old enough to be weaned about six months or so, um, six to nine months, whatever is working with that producer, um, then the calf can, can be grown and backgrounded um, for whatever comes next. So some people take weaned calves straight to like a feedlot to start feeding them, depending on how big they are. Some people take them to corn stalks, um, like we did. We, we bought these calves. They were a little bit lighter calves than what was ready to go to the feedlot um, or be ready to be finished. So we bought them a little bit lighter. We put them on some corn stalks, fed them through the winter, um, got some good condition going on them. Now we're turning them out to grass so they can continue to grow their frame and they will also grow in weight. And then this fall, when we go and take them off of the pasture, they will be ready to go to the feedlot to be finished. Um, so it's just a different way of backgrounding them. Some people take them right to the feedlot. Um, others um, let them grow a little bit longer, um, just body-wise, so that they can, can put on the pounds a little bit more. So you are going to go to a feedlot, but are you feeding them or are you selling them to somebody that's going to be feeding them? In the end, you yeah. mean when we take them off of grass? Yeah. We are not quite sure what we're going to end up doing. We have the option to retain ownership and take them to a feedlot and have them um, fed out until they're ready to be slaughtered. Or um, we can sell them directly to um, the feedlot that will go to the, then take them to the packer when they're finished. Not quite sure what um, we're going to end up doing yet. Send them, um, send them to Brian. Depends on the market. Brian's got a feedlot. <laughs> Brian, could you right? Could you take those cattle from from Paige, Brian, and feed them, or or do you got plenty to work with? Yeah, we could. There's a lot in the area, and that's one thing that we're happy to be able to do stuff locally. So we're not shipping them so far, so they can stay local, grow local, and keep everything in that you know consumer all the way to the plate. To the plate that it's locally born raised if we can so that's one thing i like doing but we've had cattle from all over the united states washington new mexico all the way out to ohio so we've had cattle come in from everywhere before so you've had yeah true. Uh, yeah go ahead i'm just trying to get you to sale there, costs. <laughs> oh, transportation costs can kind of get you so you try and you try and market them to somebody who's local, um, so that neither one of you are paying more than you have to um, to get them where they need to go to then end up being a finished product. So we try and keep everything within this region as well. Hey Brian, what's what's your feedlot look like? If we were going to uh, Paige and I were going to drive up and and walk out and look at your feedlot, is it a wide open uh, wide open area? Are there any any shelters or windbreaks around? What's it look like? Yeah, I've been real blessed that pretty much twenty thirty years ago, my dad 
with the conservation programs in the area, put in a bunch of nice seven row shelter belts. For us, that's a couple row of evergreens, some nice lilacs, which unfortunately are quitting blooming and they're always so pretty and smell so good. But with those trees, that also helps block the wind in the winter so that we have no snow and wind on the cattle. And then in the summertime, they're far enough away from our pens that we're still able to get a breeze through from the south, which is kind of your prevailing winds in the summer. For us in the northwest, we're protected with shelter belts. And we feed in, we call it a partial confinement. So we have a monoslope building that is south facing and there's enough room for all the cattle to be in the shade all day long. And then it's just amazing to watch it at sunset at night when the sun starts setting behind the trees and calves come out of that barn and they're just running, kicking, playing and having fun when it cools off in the evening. Just, just like we like to go and relax in the evening after a nice long hot day. And that's what's fun to watch. That's not what most people think of feedlots like. They, um, that's a little different image. And you're a little different feedlot in that there are really huge commercial feedlots. And a lot of people say, if you're feeding 2,000 head of cattle, that's a lot. It is. Uh, There's not many that are what I would call farmer feeders or local feeders anymore. There are these big commercial lots. um, And they in the panhandle of Texas and down in parts of Kansas and Colorado and, and so forth. What's What's the most different between a lot like that, those big commercial feedlots, and your kind of feedlot? Yeah, one of the things that's a little different, I guess, that you kind of touched on it, we are a family operation. It's me, my dad, and my kids, and we usually have one or two other people come in to help as needed, and it it helps be able that we know everything that's going on, we're hands-on, and we are in the thick of it every day, as well as managing the business. So that's where it does get a little difficult that you are the upper management and managing yourself to actually do the physical labor. So it's always a balance of that. And of course, we got to make sure we get family life in, but we are all still, no matter what size, producing good beef. And that's that's what's important, using some of these byproducts like ethanol or soybean meal that is not a byproduct after we make food for humans or, you know, gas for our gasoline cars with ethanol. And we're able to utilize that and upcycle it into some good beef protein. So do you have like an auger that goes down a bunk or something, or how do you, how are they getting the feed delivered? Yeah. In our setup, which is common, we have a commodity bay. So we have bunkers that have corn, distillers, straw, earlage, and silage on some of our rations. And then we also have a mineral supplement, just like if you take a vitamin or a gummy vite that you give your kids to balance their diet with any nutrients that they need. And that all gets dumped in in a certain order in a certain amount from our nutritionist into a mixer wagon, which is just like your KitchenAid mixer. It mixes everything together. And then I drive down my feed bunks and I, I feed the cattle. We, we have bunks on two sides of the pen. So we feed inside and outside and it allows all the cattle to get up to feed at once. And then they eat twice a day as we feed once a day and we push up feed at night to stimulate twice a day feeding. So they get their breakfast and their supper meal and they clean that up the next day. And I start over again, mix up and feed them again. So 
Well, I'll tell you what, there's just so, so much to, to cover here with, with both of you. I really, I really appreciate your kind of a painting this whole, this whole picture. One more quick thing I think that some consumers ask about is what about medications use? What about antibiotics? What about hormones? Where do they, what role do they play in either the cattle you feed or page the cows that you grow? Yeah, we um, personally don't choose to use hormones or implants at all um, on our yearlings. A lot, I mean, not a lot, but some people choose to use um, implants when they're taking their yearlings to grass or to the feed yard or whatever. Um, we personally just don't don't use that. Um, as far as like medications, we just use medications if the animal is sick. And you don't, I mean, you, you try and plan the space, um, adequately for them and the resources adequately for the animals so that they're not going to get sick in the first place. Um, but on the occurrence that they are, uh, we go ahead and treat them with some antibiotics, make them feel better. And then, um, something that I think a lot of people don't really realize is that antibiotics, um, have a withdrawal time. So they're going to be in the system of the animal, the animal's going to get healthy, and then those antibiotics are out of their system. And it's actually not even legal to sell animals that are within that withdrawal period. Um, so if I give a medicine to an animal because they were sick for whatever reason, um, then you need to wait like a month. 60 days, 90 days, whatever, whatever the specific withdrawal period time is for that um, antibiotic before you could even sell them. Um, so even if an animal has been treated with antibiotics, by the time it hits the grocery store or somebody's plate, that antibiotic is long gone. Um, the other thing we see vaccinations, yeah. we, we give vaccinations um, throughout the year just to help keep the herd healthy. So when calves are born, um, they're given a round of vaccines. When they're a couple months old, they're given another round of vaccines. Um, then at weaning time, we usually do um, a vaccine pre-weaning and post-weaning um, just to keep them, keep them healthy. And we try and minimize the amount of times that we have to actually um, have these calves or cows go through a processing shoot um, because that's hard on them, right? And so we try and minimize that. So if the cows are coming off of grass for weaning, we're going to take the cows through the shoot. We're going to give them their annual vaccines. We're going to give them warmer. We're going to preg check them all in the same time. So we're not having to constantly be messing with them and disrupting their, their cycle. And at the same time that we're doing that with the cows, we also bring the calves in to do their weaning vaccinations. Um, and so it's just a constant cycle of management and trying to make sure that we're, we're giving them what they need to stay healthy and, and um, making sure that they're just on top of their game. Yeah, and Brian, I would guess that you would have a lot in common with what she described, but with the addition, though, that you got cattle in, in a feedlot. And so, um, you know, if there's anything that's different from what she said, you know, go back and, and bring it up. But in particular, I was hoping you might be able to explain from the, from the time they hit the feedlot on what might be you doing for health. Yeah, just like Paige said, a lot of it is uh, 
when we do have a sick calf, we will treat it with antibiotics. And the biggest thing I want to note, like Paige said, it's either a month or two months. A lot of those withdrawal times are based on double the amount of time it actually takes it to get out of their system. So that is a very strict requirement that you wait that extra time so we don't have any antibiotics in meat because that's the last thing we want to do. We personally do do vaccines, just like she's saying, on arrival, we wait that either 24 hours or else they want you to wait seven to 10 days because we're trying to get those calves a vaccination. Just like when you go to the doctor, if you're really stressed or aren't feeling well, they don't want to give you a vaccine. Like my kids, I take them in to get the recommended vaccine so they stay healthy and don't get sick. I do the same thing with these calves. I give them the recommended vaccines by a licensed veterinarian that recommends for our area and for that specific group of cattle coming in what to do. So we are using, just like you go to the doctor, we're using our veterinarian to help us with our protocols to set these cattle up for success. One thing that we do do different, I guess, is we do use implants and we see added feed efficiency so we can feed less feed and have them less days on feed on the group of cattle so that they're able to gain pounds faster than if we didn't give an implant. And we also do grow some implant-free and NHTC, which are natural, no, no hormones or anything through the cattle that go to that market as well. So we handle all types of cattle and it's just whatever works for that group of cattle to gain and be on feed and the market you're going to take them to because NHTC cattle will take a little longer to feed and they'll take more pounds of feed. And to do that, you need to get a higher price when you sell them. So that all comes into the equation. It's just a Tetris pile that you got to get all lined up so that when you get to the end, you can be profitable. Uh, You guys between you have seven little boys. And here we are talking and talking and talking. And I really appreciate having this conversation. But I want to wrap it up because I want you to go look after those uh, five boys in South Dakota and two boys in Northeast Colorado that, that you've got to look after on top of everything else that you're busy with. And I want to ask you about getting the message out about how you farm and trying to address the criticisms that take place in agriculture. And I've had a chance to hear you both in rooms in Clubhouse. And I think people have heard me talk about Clubhouse a little bit before, where there are people that are critical of today's agriculture system as they they talk about it. Uh, Livestock in particular seem to have a lot of criticism. And for some reason, I want you both to explain this reason, you engage, uh, you jump in, you're patient, you hear the questions, you hear the criticisms, and you speak out for agriculture. And I have this feeling that you seem to have taken that on as part of your jobs as, as farmers and ranchers, that you're going to you're going to do this. And you just keep coming back into these sessions and uh, speak up. And you're not really seem to be kind of frustrated that it's a, it's a hard job. But um, why do you do it? And, and what are you learning or gaining from it? So for me personally, I feel like um, people are several generations removed from what the family farm was um, 20, 30, 50 years ago. They used to be able to say, well, my grandpa has a 
a farm. Well, my great grandpa has a farm. Well, people are so far removed from what that family farm was and what that experience was like. You just don't know what you don't know. And I can't hold it against somebody that they don't know what they don't know. Um, So I, I love to have conversations with people about topics with agriculture and food production because they might not even know what to ask or, or there are a lot of misconceptions out there around some hot topics in agriculture. So I really love to have those conversations in a calm way um, so that they're feeling heard. You know, they have concerns that are valid just like anybody else. Um, and, and so I like to hear what they have to say and then be able to use some facts um, and science and, and proof because we were, we're in the business and, and um, just some actual stories of what's happening in the business um, to help kind of debunk some of those myths. Um, I also have been using platforms like TikTok and Clubhouse um, to continue having these conversations and show what it's like to be on a farm on a ranch, what the realities of that are like, and then educate people about some of the like legislation and, and things that we're facing in agriculture um, in America right now are. Um, and, and a lot of the feedback that I've received, actually, I would say 95% of it is very positive. Um, people are asking questions. They want to know how to support local ranchers and farmers. They want to know who to contact um, to talk about legislation that's coming up. They, they are curious and that's a good thing. When people are curious, they want to learn. They want to know more. Um, and even the people who aren't necessarily curious, but I'm still having these conversations with, you never know who else is listening um, and you never know how far what you're talking about is going to go. So even though I might not be reaching the direct person that I'm talking to in that particular conversation, other people are listening. Other people are getting curious. Other people are going to form their own opinions and, and conceptions. And they're going to re- do their own research and figure out what they really think, or they're going to further ask questions. So it's continuing that conversation that I think is the most important thing. Yeah. Like Paige was saying, we're out here trying to educate people one person at a time. And even if it's a conversation we've had a million times, there's a million people. You look at us farmers and ranchers, and especially the people that are out being advocates for what we do and how we're trying to improve our communities, our environments. We're really working hard to reach those people. And I'll say it a million times again, to reach that one person in the crowd, because that's where we make these connections and start this dialogue and keep the communication because these people are getting removed. Even in my small rural hometown of less than 300 people, we have people two or three generations removed from the farm and they only know grandpa's farm from a long time ago. And the agriculture sector has really changed in the United States. And I feel we're able to produce a lot more with a lot less using some good science and working together and building this community. And I want my community to thrive. I want my kids to be able to come back and start their own enterprise and expand and do some more paradigm shifting things. You know, we're trying to grow some popcorn here, do something a little different to expand what we're able to grow, raise, and trying to diversify and be a bigger market where we're able to reach people, talk to them, 
And even if it's a conflict, uh, talking on Clubhouse, maybe I'm talking to someone I've talked to a hundred times about my beef and how I'm able to turn this marginal prairie land that we have here that, yeah, it could be torn up and put into corn, but I feel it's better served to keep the organic matter and the carbon sink of the grassland growing, growing that organic matter and integrating the wildlife and keeping everything in balance and harmony and making these soils better. Paige, I want to come back to you because you have been tracking some of the initiatives that have taken place around the country. And you know that consumers are having a chance to vote and sometimes on production practices or other things that affect agriculture more so than they ever did in the past. Uh, what advice do you have to people when they are looking at a, a petition or some sort of initiative or something like that that has an impact on agriculture? Do you have a suggestion? Yeah. So a lot of these initiatives that we're seeing, Initiative Petition 13 in Oregon, the PAWS Act in Colorado, um, what happened in California with Proposition 12, those are getting on the ballot because private citizens are petitioning to put them on the ballot and then citizens are actually having the chance to vote to pass those in the elections. So really, um, it's not something we can necessarily blame our legislators for. It's something that voters have the opportunity to make a difference to to um, change the path that is is being set forth before agriculture. So I would really encourage um, everybody to start looking into those things. Look into what Initiative Petition 13 in Oregon is. Look into the PAWS Act in Colorado, Initiative 16. Look into Proposition 12 and what happened in California when that was voted in in um, 2018. Look into Biden's 30 by 30 executive order. Really just start to, to um, look up information, ask questions if you're not sure, and get yourself educated the best that you can before you um, vote on those particular issues. Brian, she said it well, didn't she? Yeah, she did. That's that's the biggest thing. Be an informed person. Reach outside of your fence rows, as me and Paige are trying to do, and talk to somebody else that's an expert in the area. There's a lot of them around. We got great land grant universities and a lot, almost every state that you could reach someone who's a specialist in that area if you have questions. And that's who I'd reach out to if you have questions about any of the initiatives or propositions that are getting put up that are really going to limit and overregulate some of these sectors, I feel. Well, I've been reaching out. I've been reaching out to Brian Mose in South Dakota and Paige Delaney in Colorado. And I tell you what, I get more optimistic about the future of agriculture when I hear you two and a few others that keep wading in and speaking up and being available to answer questions and tell the story of agriculture today. And I want to thank you both for being with me on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Me. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and subscribe. Thanks for listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Roger Wasson.